friends, and welcome back to the Strange Places podcast. I am your host, Billy Dean Shoemate III, and this is episode 88. I can't believe we're almost at 100. How cool is that? I want to first thank everybody for listening, keeping coming back every week. It's awesome. The listenership of this show just keeps growing and growing and growing. I'm beside myself, and I have you guys to thank. I have no shortage of show ideas, no shortage of strange places on this earth to talk about. And today we have quite a doozy. We're going to travel to Canada this week, specifically on the evening of December 9th, 1965. The sky over the northeastern United States and southeast Canada was disturbed by a large fiery object streaking across the heavens. The orb was bright, orange in color, traveling west to east in a southerly bearing as it crossed the Detroit-Windsor-Ontario metroplex. On its path, it rained down hot lumps of metal over Michigan, parts of northern Ohio, igniting grass fires across the prairie. Then it delivered a loud sonic boom to the residents of uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, causing some of them to wonder... If the end of the world was coming, and no, I'm not being dramatic, the sonic boom and the noises were apparently so loud, there were people who actually thought that maybe we were being bombed. One lady described it as the trumpets of the end times. Pretty bizarre. But the end of the world was not nigh just yet. By then, the orb was descending, accelerating earthward at tremendous speed, It ended up making landfall 30 miles southeast of Pittsburgh, crashed to earth in a heavily wooded area just outside the village of Kecksburg. That was a good thing. Had it come down in in an urban area, there would have been massive casualties. If you want to learn about Kecksburg, based on my research, it's an unincorporated community, Mount Pleasant Township, Census, about 11,000 people. That makes it a veritable metropolis compared to its status back then in the 1960s. So the numbers I gave you were current. Back in the 60s, fewer than 300 people lived here. It was tiny. Among that number was a woman named Frances Kalp, a mother of two who lived about a half mile from where the object came to Earth. Frances was standing in her... Uh, standing in her kitchen at the time. She was watching her children play in the yard when the object passed overhead and crashed into a ravine. She ran immediately to the radio to find out if there was any news reports about the phenomenon. What she got instead was an emergency meeting informing residents that a section of a plane had come off mid-flight. Now, Francis was still absorbing this astonishing piece of information when her phone rang. You'll never guess who it was. The U.S. Navy. Now, the 1950s, early 60s were kind of the heyday of UFO interest in the U.S. Much of that, as you can imagine, had to do with the infamous Roswell incident, 1947, when some believe, and I think we've proven on this show, one of the few that amazingly we were actually able to prove, an alien craft crash-landed in the New Mexico desert. 
Oh, yeah. Listen to that episode. There were plenty of other sightings and encounters. I say that with air quotes. You can't see me do that, but I am. <laughs> to keep the public interested over the following decade and a half, Hollywood got in on the act, of course, putting out slew of alien invasion flying saucer movies. Most of them are so bad they're awesome. <laughs> Aliens were everywhere. Large black eyes focused greedily on our little blue planet. Now, Frances Kalp, housewife, mother of two, she found herself in the middle of kind of a drama like this. The Navy wanted to keep eyes on the area where the unknown object had landed and to report back if she spotted anything unusual. What a bizarre call. Anything unusual, Frances wondered. What exactly was she meant to be looking out for? What, like little green men coming over the hill? As it turns out, Francis would soon be relieved of her duty. As a UFO monitor, she barely hung up the phone when the Navy called again. The state police are on their way, the operator said. A short while later, a couple of cruisers pull up outside her house. The officers were accompanied by two stern-faced men in black suits who did not look like they were from any police agency. They told Francis that they were going to sequester her home as a temporary headquarters. Yeah, no warrant, no kind of process, nothing like that whatsoever. We're just taking it. Before she could even raise an objection, one of them was already on the phone dialing a number that seemed to be long distance. They'd make numerous calls during their brief stay, you know, leaving Francis worried about, among other things, what the hell the bill might be, you know, I know it's kind of a, she mentioned that later, what a silly thing to worry about, but, you know, she wasn't made of money and they kept making these really long distance calls, really long ones. And it was interesting that she remembered that piece of information because she need not have worried None of the calls appeared on her phone statements. Francis Kalp wasn't the only resident of Kecksburg to see the flying orb that day. Brothers Rob and Ray Landy were riding their bicycles when they saw the object streak, uh, streak across the sky. Another boy, Randy Overly, he was playing in a creek when he spotted the thing. Volunteer fireman Jim Mays was among a crew of 30 people brought in to help police locate the crash site and to put out any blazes that the thing may have caused. He was walking through the trees when he spotted blue flashing lights. Jim alerted his colleagues and they followed the flashes, eventually coming upon an object unlike anything they could have ever <laughs> imagined, let alone seen. According to Jim's later description, it was a roughly bell-shaped, about the size of a Volkswagen Beetle. Lights were strobing off of the thing. Although it was impossible to say where they were coming from, you know, since there were no external features on this object. There were, however, strange etchings on the surface, which the fireman, James uh, Romansky, one of the firemen, later described as an Egyptian hieroglyph-type writing. That was as much as the firefighters were even allowed to see. I mean, the military arrived, and they were told to leave the area immediately, a cordon went up, no more civilians allowed in. But that's not to say that some intrepid individuals didn't try to sneak a peek. 
Who wouldn't, right? A teenager named Bill Weaver got the closest out of anybody. He managed to catch a glimpse of military personnel hauling a large crate from the site. This wasn't big enough to hold the flying object, he later said. Rather, he assumed that it was something they removed from the craft. He saw no more before a guard found him and told him to move the hell along. Meanwhile, back in town, the firefighters arrived to find that their station had been commandeered by the military. Imagine that happening in any time frame. I'm not just talking about the 60s. The military being brazen enough to come in and commandeer a firehouse? That just blows my mind. These men weren't allowed into their own fire station. Crazy. Although James Romanowski reported that he later saw a flatbed military vehicle with the bell-shaped object on the back of it. Although covered with a tarpaulin, the shape was unmistakable. The military occupation of Kecksburg, Pennsylvania would be a very short one. Within days, the soldiers had packed up their stuff and left, taking the object they'd pulled from the ravine with them. However, the mystery of the Kecksburg UFO would endure for decades, still does today. Indeed, it remains unexplained even to now. You think, what the hell was this thing? Was it terrestrial, extraterrestrial, domestic, foreign, natural, manufactured? Was it really part of an airplane? As the emergency you know, broadcast had claimed, these questions are still in search of answer answers. I mean, every explanation that has been suggested falls short on one score or another. Very difficult to research this one. If you look at the initial story, Put forward by the Department of Defense and backed up by the Federal Aviation Authority and the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. What that it was that this was a meteor that entered our atmosphere and was pulled to Earth by gravity, as they are. But would a natural phenomenon have provoked such a swift and comprehensive response from the authorities? Hell no. And what of the bell-shaped object that the firefighters saw in the woods, that VW-sized dome that was firing blue beams of light from its surface. And this wasn't Canadian military. This was our military. According to small portions of their military, mostly ours, there was no such, no such object. They recovered nothing from the site. This is clearly at odds with what literally everybody reported, that there were things removed from this site. Now, you know, you could get into, sorry, my voice is a little fucked up this week. So you can get into, you know, the eyewitness thing and all that. But I mean, everybody, there were even members of the military that came forward later. A lot of them very vague, not really answering any questions. But every single person, I'm saying everybody that was around at the time, had witnesses to the, you know, it was claimed they witnessed it, whatever, something had been removed from the site, indicating that this is some kind of cover story. This is a bold-faced lie. Something else happened. We just don't know what yet. Now, we can prove that. I mean, I know I knock first-hand accounts and stuff like that, but when everybody is saying the same thing, come on, that, that's, that's got to mean something. Yet, you know, meteor strike 
remained the official explanation. Until 2005, that is. Just before the 40th anniversary of the Kecksburg incident, when NASA released a statement reporting that the object was a Russian satellite that broke up after it re-entered the Earth's atmosphere. Now, I can kind of buy this. You know, what if it was a, a Russian satellite that crashed? Yeah, the governments of Canada, the U.S., whoever else. I still find it kind of odd that our government was there. But maybe Canada enlisted the help of, you know, our government. Could have happened. Russian satellite crashes? That's actually believable. But you guys know what NASA stands for, right? If you said National Aeronautics and Space Administration, you're dead wrong. NASA stands for never a straight answer. We need to take what they say with a grain or two of salt. But the story, the cover story, I'm not going to say cover story. It may have been the story. We don't know yet. It's very believable. They had, you know, I, I could understand them trying to keep that under wraps until it was, you know, able to declassify that kind of information. I get it. The basis for this finding, though, was a series of tests carried out on the metallic fragments recovered after the incident. Many were skeptical of this explanation. In fact, investigative reporter Leslie Keene launched a legal action under the Freedom of Information Act, seeking to compel the space agency to release the test results. NASA says that's impossible since the source materials had been lost. NASA, you got a bad habit of that, don't you? Losing this, losing that, losing original photos, losing original negatives, losing the black box recording of the Apollo lander, that, or in orbiter too, on top of that, that is something that we're going to dive into on an upcoming episode because there's some weirdness involved with, <clears throat> I'm not going to go all moon landing hoax on you. I believe personally, little segue here. That just like with the Roswell thing, we have a smoking gun piece of evidence about Apollo 11. And no, it's not the footage. That's been a horse that's been beat to death for way too long. But anyway, <laughs> uh, as to not get ranty, let's get back to it. That the source materials have been lost. Sadly, that's kind of believable too. For whatever purposes, whatever reasoning, NASA's got a bad habit of losing this kind of stuff. If this was a stalling tactic meant to keep Leslie Keene at bay, wasn't a very good one. Keene had the financial backing of a TV network and would persist in his action. Two years later, October 7th, a court ordered NASA to do everything in its power to trace the documents. This was an unprecedented happening. The agency agreed to comply, however, the papers were never found, leading some to allege cover-up. More recently, NASA changed its tune, again, suggesting that the fireball may have been a Soviet Cosmos 96 spacecraft that burned up on re-entry. So they changed their story again. Things aren't looking good for you here, NASA. <laughs> I think it's reasonable to say at this point that they're lying through their teeth. They're saying it was nothing, then they're saying it was a Russian, you know, satellite that crashed. Okay, we kind of buy that. Oh wait, you know, it was a it was a Soviet spacecraft. Well, how many times are you gonna change this story, man? You could have said that from the get-go. You could have said it was a Soviet spacecraft. Why didn't they say that from the beginning? That makes zero sense. 
I don't see any reason that never a straight answer <laughs> would say that it's a you know Soviet satellite and then come around and say after they're forced to say something that Soviet Cosmos 96 spacecraft burned up on reentry. Come on. Others speculate may have been a domestic satellite launched to spy on the Soviets and that the government wanted to keep it quiet for that reason. By this point, didn't really matter anyway. The one thing that no one was talking about was the possibility that it may have been of extraterrestrial origin. No one, that is, in an official capacity. There were plenty on the fringes who believed that to be the only viable explanation. People like WHJB radio reporter John Murphy. Murphy's wife had been one of those who ventured into the woods to view this thing. She was carrying a camera, and it managed to snap several shots of the object. She took photos of this thing. However, she was spotted by a military guard, and her film was seized. John Murphy later went on to write the radio documentary Object in the Woods. Shortly after it aired, he claims that he was visited by two men stating that they were government officials. They told him that it would be in his best interest to stop talking about this UFO nonsense and hinted strongly that something bad might happen if he did not comply. That always bothered me. I mean, what does the government care? What do they care? <laughs> You know, you're almost cementing the fact that it was something extraterrestrial by telling people that. Why do you have to go out of your way? I never understood that. Why do you have to go out of your way to threaten them? If you say that this was alien or UFO, you're going to be in big trouble. Who cares? <laughs> if it was me and I was ruling, you know, an area or a country or, you know, whatever, if I was in charge of a military... And someone was seeing UFOs, you know, whatever. I wouldn't threaten them. I would just let them say it. You could write them off as a complete kook. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's crazy to me that they always threatened people like this. It's almost like painting a target on your head. You know what I mean? It's ridiculous. Never understood that. UFO researcher and author Stan Gordon was another who delved into the Kecksburg incident. His conclusion, perhaps unsurprisingly, was that the object was a craft of extraterrestrial origin, that the government knows about it, covered it up. The only other possibility that Gordon will accede to is that it might have been a craft of a foreign government, but with levels of technology that were not available in the 1960s, still not available even now. He roundly rejects the meteor theory, saying that the angle in which it entered the atmosphere is all wrong for those natural phenomena. He's also skeptical about the theory that this was space junk. Boy, you've arrived at some pretty solid conclusions, haven't you? Like I said, and we have to look at both sides of it, you know. We have to, in order to develop a well-rounded, educated, common-sense opinion. This trajectory that you're talking about, yeah, I know a lot of people witnessed it. But like I said... First-hand account, man, that's, that's got to be a last resort thing. Unless you're talking to somebody, sorry, Neil, <laughs> unless you're talking to somebody who's trained to observe, whose job it is, whose existence it is, you know, who is trained to observe. I love how Neil deGrasse Tyson, I've said this before, I love how Neil deGrasse Tyson says, you can't take first-hand accounts even from a police officer. That doesn't you know, matter if there's a police officer. Yeah, it kind of does, Neil. That's their job. They're, they're trained to observe constantly, 
all the time. Yeah, you got your bad seeds and your bad apples and stuff like that. But when your word, your word, whether you've been summoned or not, is admissible in a court of law, yeah, I'm sorry, but your firsthand account does matter. Unfortunately, that's really, you know, that's really the only firsthand account that I really take into major consideration when I see it, is that of a police officer. Just common sense. In the field, in this field of study, the paranormal, you know, the weird, the creepy, the UFOs, you know, that, that kind of stuff, ghosts, right? Common sense is something that's never used anymore. People want some, want things to be true so bad, so hard, man, that they'll overlook things that are just pure common sense. I'm sorry, but the only firsthand account that I'm ever going to take into consideration is from a fucking detective or a police officer, something. You know what I mean? We don't have that here. So I think him arriving at these concrete solutions is kind of ridiculous. You're basing the trajectory based on what people were telling you. And these aren't people who are trained to observe. These are normal, everyday citizens. I don't mean to dog people like that. I'm not discounting what they're saying. They probably believe wholeheartedly what they saw. It may have been true. Who knows? But these aren't people who, these aren't people who are trained to observe. You, you dig what I'm saying? The Kecksburg incident, sometimes referred to as the Pennsylvania's Roswell, continues to attract interest even now. Hell, we're still talking about it. I'm talking about it. In 2015, a new study came up with a theory that might address several of the anomalies involved. I got to mention this. When I was doing my digging, uh, I did find something. This may have been a General Electric Mark II reentry vehicle. I'm telling you. This is a nose cone that was fitted to several rockets during the 1960s. Looks like a bell. I was kind of shocked when I saw it, honestly. It was used, for example, to house nuclear warheads and reportedly to spy on the Russians. But one thing we know for absolute certainty, this thing carried nukes. Oh, this is something you'd want to keep classified for sure. And this is something you would keep changing your story about. My eyes kind of popped open when I saw that. Now, if you're drawing any comparisons in your head, I know you are. You've heard of it. The Nazi bell. This supposed futuristic craft that the Nazis had developed that was back-engineered or, you know, something like that. That was able to fly in these impossible ways like UFOs that, people have been witnessing. A lot of people say this may have been a Nazi bell. Very interesting theory. Let's just keep diving, huh? But you know, the, the General Electric, ugh, the, that thing kind of got me. I was, you know, researching and researching, trying to find out what the hell this thing is. General Electric Mark II reentry vehicle. It's a nose cone. This thing had nukes in it. And I'm thinking, okay, you would classify this. You would keep changing, changing your damn story if you had a broken arrow on your hands. You know what I mean? Well, not a true broken arrow, but they recovered it, obviously. But yeah, this is something you'd keep changing your tune about. Someone forces you to say it, and I ain't talking about that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Losing something that's got nuclear rockets in it or what have you, that's not something you want to advertise. Now, a lot of people cry conspiracy just based on the fact that our government was a major spearhead in this operation. I kind of want to go the opposite way. You know, this wouldn't be the first time that Canada has enlisted the help of the U.S. 
There's United States bases, military bases in Canada. One of which we'll actually talk about on the show eventually. Now, what's interesting is the GE Mark II, when I started really looking at it, this thing had jets that would have allowed it to make in-flight turns, such as those reported by some of the eyewitnesses. While this thing was streaking down, this thing would take like almost 90-degree turns as it was descending. That fits. Also, it's similar in size and shape to the object that the Kecksburg volunteer firemen saw. The Mark II's made of copper, which might explain that blue-green kind of flame. Finally, it had markings that could easily have been misinterpreted as the hieroglyphics described by James Romansky. Now, I you know, thought initially when I heard this theory that how the hell could someone misinterpret, you know, <laughs> hieroglyphs for, you know, markings on a very a general electric, <laughs> you know, flying appliance, a flying fucking toaster with nukes in it. But I can kind of see that if it's dark outside. I mean, some of those markings, they didn't stand out very well. The GE Mark II theory. This is honestly one of the most likely things that I have. This, this is a pretty good one. But I got to tell you, not everybody's convinced by it, and it's not an original idea. <laughs> I was not the first one to make this link, apparently. I was kind of surprised. I felt very proud of myself. But <laughs> no, I guess I'm, I, I wasn't the first person to link the, the Mark II rocket thing. I wish I was. That would have been awesome. I, I was feeling very, like I said, I was feeling very proud of myself. The military continues to insist that this was a meteor strike. They're still saying this. NASA has changed their story. How many times? Military is still saying, no, meteor strike. Something's not jiving here. UFO enthusiasts continue to cry foul, insisting that this is yet another government cover-up designed to keep us in the dark about the presence of aliens. Perhaps one day we'll know the truth, yeah? Now, a little footnote to this. If you're ever in Kecksburg, you can see a full-size model of this thing, actually. The object in the woods. It's on display in the town center. Close to, yeah, you guessed it, the fire station. But there's one more thing I want to talk about. And I want to say I haven't looked at it yet. I refrained from doing so as much as I really wanted to. Because <laughs> you know that we save some research for when we're actually sitting here recording. Pardon my, pardon my squeaky chair. And that's kind of a thing, you know, on strange places. So I've, I've, uh, I've purposely kept my, my, myself away from it. I've kept my eyes averted. And I'll let you know from what. Remember the photos that were taken of the object? The military took them away. Well, before, she kind of knew this was coming. <laughs> there were two rolls of film. She knew that the military was going to confiscate these photos, or, or so she says. You know, the witness that took these photos. So she quickly rewound one of the rolls, you know. She'd only taken one or two photos off of it. Quickly rewound the roll and hid it in her clothes. They confiscated the first one. But she had successfully gotten away, apparently, with a couple photos of this thing. Yeah, a photo or photos of this thing do exist. And I was thinking, as we're recording right now, I've never seen photos of this thing. Let's take a peek. So give me a second. Let's pull up a browser here. 
Okay, I almost had a complete heart attack, but I'm looking at the uh, recreation. <laughs> uh, forgive me, it's five in the morning. I've been up for about 24 hours straight. And um, yeah, I'm looking at the recreation. And I know this was taken back in the 60s, but my coffee-addled, being up for 24-hour brain, uh, I yeah, my heart skipped a beat. I was like, what the hell? <laughs> but yeah, looking at the reproduction, there's no way in hell a photo's that good. So, I mean, just like Roswell, I'm seeing a newspaper article too. Unidentified flying object report touches off probe near Kecksburg. And I'm trying, oh, here it is. Okay. Very 1960s looking photo, and I'm seeing multiples. Okay, so yeah, this is one of the photos in question. That is very interesting. You can obviously tell this photo was taken in the 1960s. It's on the back of a flatbed truck. Huh. It's kind of a crappy photo. I mean, it, 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 1960s, right? I mean, I don't see any really high-res images of this thing. Huh. Well, there aren't going to be, really. I don't see any markings on it. It does look like it's made of copper. just looks like a giant acorn. So, strangely, it looks just like depictions of what the Nazi bell was described as looking. Pretty weird. But just to get kind of refreshed on this, I want to look at the General Electric Mark II. I've seen photos of it already in preparation for this. But just to make sure, I kind of want to refresh myself on this because there's a couple things we have to determine here, right? Is this an authentic photograph? And if it is, is this a photo of the Mark II, which I think is the most plausible, if you ask me, the most plausible explanation out there. And just as I thought, it looks absolutely nothing like the nose cone of a Mark II. <laughs> I was wondering about that. This doesn't resemble... No. This doesn't resemble the nose cone of a Mark II at all. And yeah, there are weird stamps and kind of half rubbed off numbers and stuff on it. I could see how that's mistaken for hieroglyphs. I really can just kind of shoddily stamped markers and numbers on the bottom of the nose cone. But this photo, obviously we can't tell for absolute certainty if this was taken of the object on that time, on that day. You know, we, we, we can't know for sure. You know what I mean? But what I can tell you is that this photograph, obviously this was taken in the 60s around that time. No doubt about it. It's not photoshopped. Trust me. I've been doing photo editing forever. Um, what I can conclude for sure is that this photo was taken around that time, was taken on film, and it is, this is not a photo of the General Electric Mark II. That's all I can tell you. I don't know if this was a real photo of whatever crashed outside of Kecksburg. We don't, there's no way to know that. I don't know if we can even believe the story that she knew that these guys were going to confiscate her film. So she, you know, replaced the role and had one that they could quote unquote confiscate, snapped a couple photos with a brand new role, quickly rewound it and stuffed it into her clothes. 
I can see that happening, yeah. But there's no way to prove that. We have nothing. All we have, evidence-wise, is this supposed photograph. And the only conclusion that we could draw, it is not the nose cone of a General Electric Mark II. No way. What a strange-looking photograph. What a strange-looking object. Now, there are some people that argue, and this is interesting. I'm just reading this right now. This theory had not occurred to me. But I'm looking at this kind of post with this right now. Some people are saying that this is a photo of them loading up the reproduction to put on display. <laughs> that this is actually a photo of the reproduction before they erected it. But you know what? I got to tell you, it's not. It's not. This thing is metallic. It's shiny. It's reflect refracting light. And the reproduction is made out of, it appears to be, well, it's definitely not metal, I can tell you that. Looks like stucco, kind of a clay. Almost uh, like a terracotta, almost. Yeah, it's, it's not the same. Very interesting photograph. So we know for a fact it's not the General Electric Mark II nose cone. It's not the reproduction. And we know it was taken around that time. So what the hell is this thing and where did it come from? This could be a hoax, yeah. But if it was, humor me for a second. This just occurred to me too. If it was, someone would have had to make two reproductions of this thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? This is not photo editing. This is what, this is kind of freaky. This is what grabs me because... This large metallic acorn looking thing. I mean, I would put money on it that this thing's made out of copper. We know it's not the Mark II. We know it's not the reproduction of the one that they put up on display. This was taken at about the same time. And it matches what all these people are saying. Could it be a hoax? Yeah, you bet your ass. But who the hell would go through the trouble of, you know, <laughs> creating this thing for a... a photograph they were working on it. I just I, it's just weird to me the Kecksburg incident I hate to say it I honestly thought we were going to debunk this one I was sold on that General Electric Mark II until I started looking at these pictures again and cross-referencing it could have been a Mark II but we can't corroborate that we don't even know if this photo is legitimate we have no idea there's nothing to legitimize the photo. It's a bizarre picture. You got to look it up. It's this thing sitting on the back of a flatbed. Yeah, this photo was taken in the 1960s. What else could it be? Or, you know, that's what people are saying. What the hell else could it be? But it's a shitty photo. It's got bad markings. Yeah, you can't see any of the markings on it. It just looks like this big, kind of scratched up, dented piece of freaking copper. It's obvious that something crashed outside of Kecksburg. We can draw that conclusion. It was not a meteor. If you look at the military presence, if you look at the, the bullshit that NASA has said multiple times, the U.S. is still saying meteor because they can afford to say that. Everybody thinks that the NASA is a be-all, end-all of the government. Buck stops with NASA. No, it doesn't. A court has ruled before that NASA, you better spill the beans on this. Produce some, 
produce something or there's going to be some trouble. But as always, NASA always gets off with a slap on the wrist, if they even get that. So NASA has been forced to change their story multiple times. What does that tell you? That tells you that it was something to be kept secret. Whether this was entirely terrestrial, entirely explainable, could have been. But it might not be something that the people at large need to know about. As I said, the government can afford to throw up their hands and be like, eh, meteor. They can do that because the buck stops with them, not NASA. It's obvious that something not normal crashed outside of Kecksburg. The question is, is it extraterrestrial? We can't even prove that this photograph is legitimate. There are no eyewitnesses that I would say are credible. Sorry to say that. But unless you're trained to observe, like I said, then I really don't put a lot of credence into eyewitness accounts. Yes, they saw something. Yes, they did. But all we have is this photo that raises more questions than answers. I got to say, Kecksburg incident, photo in particular, definitely requires some further study. And I really thought we were going to end up debunking this one. I thought we had this one in the bag. But that's kind of the fun of strange places, isn't it? Anyway, guys, what do you think? Make sure to go on Asylum817.com. That's Asylum817.com for all things Strange Places related. All the social media links are there as well as the link to get to our Patreon account where you can get everything from bonus episodes, giveaways at certain tiers, ad-free episodes, all kinds of stuff. Even a podcast just for the patrons. Yeah, whatever. what other podcast does that? So, uh, yeah, shout out to the patrons, by the way. The Kunkel Homestead YouTube channel, Donald Haynes, David Peterson. I appreciate you guys. I really, really do. Thanks for listening. Thank you to the audience. Huh? Thanks for coming back. I appreciate it. And, yeah, that's all we got here for now. Now, are we ever going to run out of strange places to talk about? I don't think so. Because every town has a strange place. And maybe one day, we'll visit yours. The Strange Places podcast is brought to you by DistroKid. DistroKid is a music label for truly independent artists. They will distribute and share your music on every streaming platform the internet has to offer. And the best part is that you keep all of your royalties. In fact, DistroKid has made history, marking the first time that an artist on the charts made 100% of their earnings. This is the music industry's worst nightmare, giving indie artists complete control over their art. For only 20 bucks a year, you can upload unlimited music and with the split feature, you can split a percentage of the earnings to your bandmates. If you click the affiliate link in this episode's description, you get 7% off the first year. But did I mention that after that, it's only 20 bucks a freaking year? I've been a musician for a long time. My music is heard all over the world and yours should be too. Click the link in this episode's description to not only support strange places, but put control of your own music back into your hands. No contracts, no hidden clauses, no lovely coin men in their lovely, lovely suits. Thanks to DistroKid for being a sponsor and giving this old dog an audience.